Fans, don't forget now, still to come, my conversation with Ron Simmons, plus Medusa will be here, and we'll also see heavy metal Van Hammer meet Cactus Jack. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. Welcome to episode 140 of Greetings from Allentown. I'm your host, Peter Winston. And today, because it is the appropriate season for this sort of thing, the Halloween season, you know, I'm not really much of a Halloween guy. When it comes to Mike Myers, I, I think my order goes the guy from SNL, and so I married an axe murderer, and then the relief pitcher for the Red Sox and Yankees in the mid-2000s, and then the guy from Halloween. Anyway, WCW main event from October 27th, 1991, the same day as Halloween Havoc from that year. And WCW 1991 is kind of a light passion of mine. Not quite like the WWF, but still something I'm very interested in because I was watching on a weekly basis. So I didn't even have this episode in my queue or on my list. It was just something that I happened to see, and it has Oz on the program. So I figure, why the hell not? So, before I get any further into this, let me get my plugs. You can email the show, greensmalltown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greensmalltown. Give me a follow on Twitter at gfallentownpod, that is at gfallentownpod, and you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, and you can listen to other shows on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, such as WorldCast, covering world-class championship wrestling from October of 1983, the Days of Thunder podcast. They're on Slamboree 1998, finally. It's been building up to that. And I also got, on a weekly basis, Boom Goes the Dynamite, looking at the AEW show of the same name. It's actually just Dynamite. It's not Boom Goes the Dynamite. Oh, whatever happened to that kid who had the viral video of that? I mean, even I wasn't that dumb to do anything like that in college, although probably my my low point in broadcasting in college was it was the era of trying to do catchphrases, and I had to do the highlights of an ALC. I think it was ALCS game one between Seattle and the Yankees in 2000. And I think for an A-Rod home run for Seattle, I said something like, he is the master of his domain, which is a very interesting comment given what happened to A-Rod later on. Anyway, check all those shows out on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. And yeah, I did did not decide on this one until relatively late because this weekend, and it's really cut into my wrestling watching time working where I do now because I work earlier in the day so things are shifted slightly i can no longer record the podcast in the morning which i'm probably rare among podcasters in that i actually enjoyed podcasting between the hours of 7 and 9 a.m greatly i mean when i wasn't working those were like prime hours for me because just sit at the kitchen table and just go 
now doesn't work quite so well because I have to leave for work between 7.45 and 7.55 in order to get there by 9 o'clock. And I don't get home until close to 7. So it really cuts into the wrestling viewing, which means when you have something like NWA Power that I like watching on a regular basis, you had the third episode a week and a half ago, I still haven't even gotten to it as as I taped this because I was at a hockey game last Tuesday night when it would have been on and stre- streaming that on my phone. You know, I'm not going to stream wrestling on my phone while I'm at a hockey game. That just seems a little weird, except for that time that I streamed the Ronda Rousey match from WrestleMania 34 while at the last Bruins game of the season. I actually did do that because uh, I was pissed off because the Bruins were on their way to losing that game and losing the division title. So this past weekend, I'm down in Long Island. My wife's sister's kid has a baptism slash christening. I know it varies depending on the denomination, but I guess this would be a formal baptism since it was in St. Dominic's Catholic Church, which all it made me think of was the good old DJ Parv remix, um, Titans of Wrestling. Nobody cares about Dominic from the Larry Zbysko promo. We, we miss you, Parv. Come back. All, all, all is forgiven. I, I don't, I don't even know you, but, but yet I, I think of you and ask for you to return someday. But anyway, as I'm there at the baptism, all, all I can really think of is I certainly hope that with, with my wife as the godmother that we don't have a godfather situation as they're doing the vows there, like in the Godfather, where they show all the other stuff going on, which I know. Definitely was not happening because it was freaking pouring rain outside and everything was flooding because every freaking storm drain in Long Island and Nassau County was covered by leaves that had come off the trees. It was almost as if they decided to take those leaves and instead of raking them or having them just fall organically, like, we're going to pile it up over the storm drains because we want the Cross Island to, to flood. We want the Northern State Parkway to flood. We want these inexplicable traffic jams there. So I, I guess a baptism, and it had been, I, I apparently I must have gone to the ones for my nephew's years ago, but that would have been like 2009, 2010 at this point. So I don't really remember how, how different those masses go. And the format is slightly different. I, I don't know if there's a second reading. They kind of went right to the gospel. And the guy, the guy's homily was very interesting, this particular priest, who had quite the Long Island accent. And I was trying to place where, he, what he reminded me of. He, he remind, apparently my mind was on hockey, having missed the Bruins-Blues game the night before that he reminded me of a cross between Bruins coach Bruce Cassidy and Columbus Blue Jackets coach John Tortorella. Is he, and he had like a real Long Island accent as well, an alter. You know, I, I, it's the kind of thing that I notice, even though I'm probably talking with an accent right now and just not even noticing it at all. And his homily was about this, this guy who, now I, I'm no religious scholar or anything, but he's like, if I could get a jersey of anybody from the Bible, it would be Nicodemus. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. Apparently, it was because Nicodemus stood up for, for stood up for Jesus and said, "You are a man of God," or, or something to that effect. But I couldn't get past the fact fact that Nicodemus sounds like a smoking cessation product. It sounds like what like that was that that gum that I chewed years ago that I had to give up on because it constantly gave me the hiccups. Oh, no, wait, that was Nicoderm, uh, 
Nicoderm seek. I don't even remember what the hell it was, but it's a baptism. Very interesting. As out on the desk, they had this flyer that apparently earlier in the month, and this must have been left over from that, they had some sort of, I don't know if it was like a speech by one of the priests or, or what the hell it was, but it said, you gotta believe, and there's a picture of the New York Mets from 1969 celebrating, and it said the Reverend John Barris, or John O. Barris, it said September 2019, a pastoral letter to the people of God, of the Diocese of Rockville Center, celebrating the October 16th, 2019, 50th anniversary of the 1969 Amazing Mets winning the World Series. So, I don't know. I guess that was divine intervention for the Mets to win it all in 1969. Which I, I have to remind you that the Mets were completely terrible for the first seven years of their history up to that point. It would be like, I don't even know if there even is a precedent in today's sports for that i guess this would be like if the sacramento kings won the nba championship this year just completely out of nowhere that would be very interesting to see then again i never thought i would see the toronto raptors win the nba title so anyway it's it's halloween and tis the season figure wcw is the promotion who actually acknowledges halloween as a thing oh sure they're probably doing something on raw right now where somebody is dressed up in a costume or 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 something but they've never done like a pay-per-view really devoted to it in the manner that halloween havoc was for the last 12 years in wcw's history i believe they had it all the way up to the end 89 right up through 2000 now 1991 halloween havoc maybe not the greatest one in the world probably most remembered for that uh, Chamber of Horrors match where Abdul the Butcher gets electrocuted in the chair and the switch accidentally flipped early and Cactus Jack had to save the match by you know putting it back in the correct position. But hey, like I said, WCW 1991 is a light passion for me. And this that pay-per-view, so I guess it's the same day of, as this show, it's kind of a turning point for WCW because you get Flair... He's out of there in July, right before the bash, and you have that, that I, I don't know what to call it, the Great American Bash 1991. If anything needed divine intervention from the Catholic Church, I think that was the one. They needed something from the Archdiocese of Baltimore at that particular point in time. By the way, the Archdiocese of Baltimore sponsors pitching changes in Baltimore Orioles games on the radio, which is one of my favorite advertising things ever. But Havoc 91... It's when things start to turn around. Oh no, not nothing like nothing happens overnight. But you kind of give birth to the Dangerous Alliance because Paulie Dangerously comes back into the picture as a manager for the masked Halloween Havoc Phantom, which turns out to be Ravishing Rick Rude, which is a nice get for WCW. He's gone for a year from the WWF, kind of a non-compete sort of thing where he just has to ride that out, shows up in WCW. So it seems like they're now finally ready for the post-Ric Flair era, for a little while anyway, about a year and change, as it would turn out. Of course, Flair's over in the WWF with WCW's old world title, waving it around everybody. That's in litigation at this point in time doesn't really get squared away for another couple of weeks. But I have to say I enjoyed WCW for much of 1991 for one simple reason. It was wrestling and it was on TV and I was 12 years old. So it's not like I was particularly fussy and choosy about the wrestling that I was going to watch. Now I might be a little bit more choosy 
if if I turn on Raw right now and uh, to give you a peek behind the curtain, it's, it's Monday night at like nine thirty or something like that. I think the Monday night football game is going to halftime. As I turn on Raw right now, okay, well, bad timing here because it's in a commercial for Burger King, which I'll give them credit that they have Burger King ads on there. It, it does seems better than some commercials that I remember them having in the past. But wh- why why would I pick this particular show, a WCW main event? Well. I think part of it was because I said that Van Hammer was going to be on it, and people seemed to like that. Another show that I was looking at had, it was from a little earlier in the year, at the end of August, is a WCW Pro on WGN that had an Eleganti promo in the middle of it, had the one-man gang, so a couple of other interesting things. Maybe I'll cycle back to that one at a certain point, but an interesting thing about the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view, or at least that day, given that this is the Atlanta, Georgia-based promotion. And there's no way they could have known this, probably planned out when Halloween Havoc was going to be well in advance. It was always on that last weekend of October anyway. They did not know that the Atlanta Braves, also owned by Ted Turner at that time, were going to be in Game 7 of the World Series, which might hurt a little bit of the buzz for it, and that also happened to be a pretty famous World Series for some of the games being really exciting, including Game 7. It actually comes up during this show, oddly enough. So it was a little bit of bad luck in that happening where they're going up against that i think baseball was maybe a little bit more popular back then because world series games didn't last i mean the game seven went 10 innings now you're praying for these things to somehow be rained out after six god willing because then the game will only be three hours and 15 minutes but very typical of WCW to have something like that happen. Oh, sure. They screwed up plenty on their own, but they would always be unlucky with like little stupid things like that happening. But on this show, there, there there's a cavalcade of rather interesting things. Like I said, we got Van Hammer and he's facing off against Cactus Jack and this is not their most famous match, those two. Yes, they would face off at a Clash of Champions in early 1992, but this is before that. This is right after Van Hammer has come into the promotion. We also get Oz. So, yes, Kevin Nash and his bizarre WCW gimmick. Not his first WCW gimmick, but, you know, it, it predates Vinny Vegas and Vinny Vegas Corner, I guess. So, But we also have, and I thought this was a very interesting part of this show as well, is a women's match. Because Medusa had come in to WCW and had debut, had made her in-ring debut just a little bit before this. And who is she facing but Judy Martin, which is pretty interesting because you think of her as a creature of 1980s WWF. But here she is, 1991 WCW. I mean, they will only give everybody a try at this point. They're going to throw anything at the wall, throwing out women's matches, even though they didn't really have a women's division to speak of at this point. We're also going to hear a little bit more on the Havoc 91. We got Gordon Soley in the control center, and we're going to hear from the two guys in the main event at Halloween Havoc. No, not in the Thunder Cage or the Chamber of Horrors. I always get that confused. Thunder Cage was 89, Chamber of Horrors is 91. Lex Luger and Ron Simmons for the WCW World Heavyweight title in a two out of three falls match. And we actually hear multiple times from Ron Simmons because he was being pushed very hard on WCW television. And 12-year-old me was very excited about Ron Simmons because of all the football that was being pushed by Jim Ross on every telecast because Jim Ross was 
on every freaking TV show at this point. So let's get right into it. WCW main event, October 27th, 1991. Funny to think of Enter Sandman by Metallica as making the American Top 40, but it was number 19 that week in 1991, primarily known in wrestling circles as being the theme song for the Sandman. Now, you'd never know it by watching the WWE Network because of how everything is dubbed over. Just trust me, you had to be there for the original ECW to live and experience that. Also, the theme song for Yankees closer Mariano Rivera, who blew Game 7 of the 2001 World Series, as well as Games 4 and 5 of the 2004 American League Championship Series. He had, right before that ALCS, he had relatives die at his house because they jumped in an electrified pool. And I'm fascinated by he apparently had it to keep the dogs from jumping in. But isn't there an easier way to keep the dogs from jumping into a pool than by electrifying the entire pool when you have people there who might not necessarily know? Anyway, I'm not casting aspersions on Mariano Rivera. I just think it's a little bit weird that he had a freaking electrified pool. But anyway, Enter Sandman was his theme, and that's how I got onto that. And speaking of intro music, the one for WCW Main Event, which you heard at the top of the show, it's the one where the belts come flying in, and you see the world title at the beginning, the Lex Luger title that they had to give to or give to him because the big gold belt is over in the WWF at this point due to circumstances. The second belt that comes flying across the screen is the Western States Heritage title, which hasn't even been in this freaking promotion since 1988. Was the last time that was defended anywhere. I mean, it 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 would drive me crazy if it wasn't for the fact that it was so hilarious. So our hosts for this program are Jim Ross and Missy Hyatt, who just turned 56 years old. I'm sure she'd be thrilled about hearing me say that number. But Halloween Havoc is one hour away, says JR, so you can call your local cable systems to order that event, you know, if you're not watching the Braves and the Twins in the World Series that night. But as I said, Medusa had just come in to WCW as a wrestler and was kind of laying claim to that first lady of wrestling slash first lady of WCW bit. And that did not sit well with Missy Hyatt, who, while she's here as a co-host of Main Event, she's not calling matches, and I'm scratching my head as to why she's there. Well, all I have to say to you, Medusa, is you're a Missy Hyatt wannabe. And besides being the first lady of WCW, I'm the first lady of wrestling. So don't threaten me, because I can take care of somebody like you. It's really funny looking back when you think about Missy Hyatt versus Medusa. The the issue that seems to exist between them is this promotion isn't big enough to have two women in it. So one of us has got to go. They were absolutely nothing alike. So there was something, I guess, for everybody. I mean, you know, you could line up and pick sides. But, you know, for the parlance of the time being late 1991 and this show was still on the air... Basically, Missy Hyatt was more of the Blanche Devereaux type, and Medusa would be more like Dorothy. Because you could see her as B. Arthur kicking ass, and you could see Missy maybe a little bit, you know, promiscuous like, <laughs> like Blanche was. Or as the saying goes, Missy, 
<laughs> Medusa in the streets and Missy in the sheets. <laughs> oh my god, I'm such a pig. That's the highlight of that feud. I think it was Beach Blast 92. I think it was the pay-per-view where they had the bikini contest between Medusa and Missy Hyatt that Jesse Ventura was hanging around and Johnny B. Bad was apparently one of the judges and Jesse spent his entire time basically just calling Johnny B. Bad gay. And... In a nice little coincidence here, we have Johnny B. Bad up first on WCW Main Event taking on Dave Taylor. And when I saw the matchup, I was like, wow, that's that's interesting. Dave Taylor? No, it's not the same Dave Taylor who was in the Blue Bloods later in the 90s. But it is nice to have Johnny B. Bad back in my life again, not just from this program, but he was on the Steve Austin show earlier this week, and it's not its not like I'm a regular listener to that podcast. When that first came around in 2013, I really enjoyed listening to all the interviews that he had. It's just that after a while, he kind of just ran out of gas, and I really picked my spots with the Austin show, maybe listen to two of them a year. And when I saw that Mark Merrow is on this past Tuesday, fascinating interview like stuff that i did not know about mark marrow being a cokehead par excellence prior to him coming into wcw and his appreciation for dusty Rhodes, not only kind of quote-unquote discovering him plucking him from a preliminary wrestler role and giving him a nice contract to be little richard which not to spoil the interview but Johnny B. Bad did not know, or Mark Merrow, did not know that he kind of resembled Little Richard because I don't think he knew what the character was growing up in Buffalo, New York. A lot of a lot of greats out of Buffalo, you know, Steve Bennett of the Sportscasters and Rob Gronkowski for, and Patrick Kane from an athletic perspective, two of the very best of what they've they in their respective sports, the Goo Goo Dolls, or was it the Gin Blossoms? I can't I can never keep them straight. All from Buffalo, New York, as is Mark Merrill. When you look at him, you don't think of him as a dude from Buffalo. But that that interview was very, very fascinating where he taught, especially the WCW stuff, because him in Austin, and Merrill was very complimentary of Austin's work in WCW, particularly his work ethic. Because he kind of had some regrets looking back. Like, maybe I should have, you know, committed a little bit more to what's going on. But I, I never, uh, people in the business seem to have it out for Marrow. I, I don't know if it's because of the way he spoke out around the Chris Benoit thing. It's like, oh, sorry, sorry that you speak ill of something that's going on in this business that just had this guy murder his entire family. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry that he decided to speak up about that, but. Gotta love Mark Merrow because I think it was MLJ who said on Twitter about a week ago, like, how good was this guy? He did a sunset flip off the top and didn't kill himself. He's a terrific athlete. He got to Sable first. He talks about how that marriage ended up declining and some really good insight from that perspective. You just, the way you look at it from above or from afar is, oh, Sable got popular and they grew grew apart. Well, it was a little bit more complicated than that. And, you know, he go, Mero goes into why he, you know, allowed himself to be powerbombed by Sable at WrestleMania 14. And the, the priceless story of how he, of his reaction when he found out that Sable was seeing Brock Lesnar. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go listen to that. And, uh, it, it was quite funny. 
as he's coming to the ring, of course, he's accompanied by Teddy Long, the godfather of WCW. I did not know that he had the bad blaster quite this early, but that, that little thing that fires off the confetti, he had that in 1991. This character is so damn good because, all right, Dusty Rhodes' 1991 booking, yeah, you could take an issue with a lot of things that he did, but he created Johnny B. Bad in the year 1991, so I honestly, it was a success as far as I'm concerned. During the entrances, Jim Ross lets us know that his radio show may be preempted on this evening. We're taping this broadcast earlier than normal this week so that we can be in Chattanooga. So with those thoughts in mind, wrestling with Jim Ross on AM 750 WSB will not air tonight if there is a seventh game of the World Series. I played that not because I cared that much about Jim Ross's radio show, although I do recall on more than one occasion going out to one of my parents' car in the driveway and actually being able to pull in AM750 WSB from Massachusetts and be able to listen to parts of the Jim Ross radio show. But, man, that clip had everything I could have wanted. Number one, it had a baseball reference in it to Game 7 of the World Series that night. Of course, it did go to a Game 7. And also, Johnny B. Bad's original music playing in the background, which I prefer to the, the, the second version that you would hear much more common during his run for the next four years or so. As I said, Teddy Long is with him, and I was thinking of different incarnations of the godfather of WCW. Hell, you could even go to where he's a SmackDown general manager. Is is this my favorite version of Teddy Long ever? Eh, I don't know if it's with Doom, but I, I feel like he was the perfect heel manager for Johnny B. Bad early on. This is just the, the perfect effeminate gimmick. Yes, there's Adrian Street coming before him and Adrian Adonis doing a similar thing in the WWF. But I love how he, he's just a guy who knocks guys out with a left hand as his finisher. So it's like, oh, you're going to call me gay? Like the unfortunate, uh, I almost said unfortunate tweet, jeez. Unfortunate crowd chant led by Brian Pillman at the Great American Bash in 91. Yeah, it was the yellow dog, but it was Pillman. Like, can we not use the term for English cigarettes even in 1991? I mean, it was completely inappropriate. Now, they're going to stall a little bit more because I don't know if they're running short on time. The video for this episode is only 38 minutes, but... Teddy Long, it's, instead of starting to match, Teddy gets in the ring and he puts up the focus mitts for, for, for Johnny B. Bad to, you know, practice his boxing, you know, left, right, left, right towards one of them and then the big left hook towards one of them. I'm just glad that I could enjoy something involving focus mitts for a change because some of the worst podcasts I've ever heard in my life was years ago, Adam Carolla had some boxer on. And he did 11 minutes of sparring with focus mitts where Adam was holding or the other guy was holding him up. And it was like, you do realize this is an audio podcast. And we had to listen to 11 minutes of it. That that was years ago, though. It's just something that stayed with me. The modern usage of focus mitts really came into greater use with the Bruce Lee stuff in the 60s and 70s. So it's not something that was around in like the 40s. You, you, you won't see footage as much of like Joe Lewis hitting the focus mitts or anything. Not that this really would be any footage of that anyway, as 
They had some body blows by Johnny B. Bad. All I can think of is the old Mike Tyson's punch-out game. Excuse me, regular punch-out as it was in the arcade. Body blow, body blow, and an elbow, and he chucks the <laughs> fake Dave Taylor out of the ring. Now, this allows Teddy Long to actually get up, not on the apron, but actually into the ring to preen with Johnny B. Bad as JR discusses how Bad will have to lose weight if he wants to enter the light heavyweight division, which was getting going in WCW around this time. This was not going to be a success on the same level as the cruiserweight division in 96 and later. But it certainly had its moments, I and mean, the finale was that night at Halloween Havoc between Brian Pillman and Richard Morton of the York Foundation, lest we forget that thing was going on around this time. And it did lead to Brian Pillman Jushin Liger matches at the end of 91 and into 92 at Super Bowl II, the pay-per-view, the only pay-per-view held on February 29th. I don't know if they're going to hold uh, the pre-WrestleMania pay-per-view on February 29th, but it's on a Saturday, so probably not, and God forbid that they would do anything anything silly, you know, like hold a pay-per-view on a day that's not Sunday. You know, oh God, we can't have it on Saturday. That, that, that's when other people have pay-per-views, but you get a reversal of a corner whip and bad comes out with a knee to the gut, so Dave Taylor not getting much in the way of offense. And Bad, he he hits the sunset flip off the top rope, but it only gets a two count. Which Why are jobbers kicking out of a sunset flip off the top? And also, why is a heel doing that move? But yeah, he liked to show off the athleticism. He does a kind of an Ali-style shuffle for a bit, goes up top, and hits an elbow. And you think, okay, well, the Macho Man hasn't been reinstated over in the WWF. So the move is up for grabs at this point, but he doesn't even go for a pin. Instead, he picks the man up like he's going for a vertical suplex, but almost like it's like it's backwards, like he had him lined up for like a scorpion death drop or whatever. But it was basically just an inverted front suplex. I, I, I have no idea what he was trying to accomplish with that. Hits the high knee, and then the left hand KO puts away Dave Taylor, the fake Dave Taylor. And... For whatever reason, the the left hand of Johnny B. Bad, and he, and he does have a legitimate boxing background. He did suffer an injury, so that's that's why his boxing career went kaput before he ever got into wrestling. I would like I would like to utilize the Greatest from Allentown time machine to have Johnny B. Bad. Let's let's pick any year from ninety one to ninety five. Maybe maybe give him ninety two or ninety three. Maybe you want to keep him as a heel, though, in 91. Why don't we do that? I want him to face 1985-86 Ronnie Garvin. Basically kind of the same hold. And, like, one of the, the two two of the very few guys that I will accept just throwing a punch as their finisher. Here's a look at the WCW Top 10 Rankings and Singles Competition as compiled by promoters and members of the WCW Board of Directors for the weekend of Saturday, October 26th. In the number 10 spot for the second week in a row, the computerized man of the 1990s, Terrence Taylor. The number 9 man in this week of the top 10 is the dog-faced gremlin, Rick Steiner. The number 8 man up one spot from last week from Macon, Georgia, 
Johnny B. Bad. In at number seven this week, the former world television champion, beatable Bobby, up one spot to number six. From Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, Cactus Jack. And the top five remains the same from last week. The number five man, the natural Dustin Rhodes. Number four, world TV champ, stunning Steve Austin. And number three, Barry Windham. In at number two, All-American Ron Simmons. And the number one ranked contender, the U.S. heavyweight champion, Sting. And of course, the WCW world heavyweight champion is the total package, Lex Luger. You know, other than Terry Taylor, that isn't a completely terrible list. I mean, I like pretty much everybody who's on there. Rick Steiner, Cactus Jack, who seems to have hit a glass ceiling at number six because he's never going to pass Dustin, who's the son of the booker, Austin, Wyndham, Ron Simmons, who's getting the big push, and Sting. But it's kind of interesting. They finally stopped it with the Elegante and kind of ranking him in the middle of the top ten, which is something that exists because I'm sure Jim Ross must have insisted upon it. Hello, I'm Gordon Soley, and this is Halloween Havoc Control Center. Well, this is the weekend we've all anxiously anticipated because this Sunday night, exclusively on pay-per-view, it's Halloween Havoc 91. I had mentioned that WCW was a little bit unlucky with the World Series airing at the same time as the Halloween Havoc pay-per-view. And granted, it was Game 7, and you really can't project for something like that. Although it should be noted that the NFL would not have Sunday night football to go against the World Series. They actually stayed away from each other during that point in time. That th- Those days are long gone. Now we got Thursday night football walloping game two of the World Series or whatever it was last week that I recall happening. But that the show, Halloween Havoc 91, by rate of 0.8, lowest in WCW history to that point, going all the way back to 87 Starcade, which had the lowest number of buys ever because it was barely cleared by any cable systems, like four of them, something like that, including Meltzer's neighborhood, lucky enough for him. But that that only had 20,000. This one had 120,000 buys, which is the fewest, although Russell War 89 also is listed as 120,000 buys. And so WCW, you have to remember, not in the greatest place in the world. Even the Great American Bash 91, that that celebrated train wreck that I ordered on pay-per-view had 145,000 buys. And it does tick up to 155,000 for Starcade at the end of the year, despite the fact that it's a battle bowl and a non-traditional card. But we're in the Halloween Havoc Control Center, so it's very much kind of like harkening back to the old Starcade Control Center, except... Instead of Tony Schiavone standing in front of some real TVs, we have Gordon Soley in front of a green screen with the fake cartoon reel-to-reel, which I think I solicited opinion on this a while back, and it seemed to be divided to a certain point. And honestly, when I look at the, 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 the little things going on in the background, I'm like, you know, that is kind of bullshit. But I kind of dig it anyway. It's one of those things where I'm just willing to suspend any any sort of you know, caring about it looking tacky or whatever. So there's 11 matches on Halloween Havoc, which feels like a lot for a three-hour pay-per-view with the Chamber of Horrors and who are the creatures? That, now, the Halloween, Fanta, the Halloween Havoc Phantom we, we know is Ravishing Rick Rude, but the masked creatures, you never found out who they were. Oh, that was actually Joey Mags and Johnny Rich. So you probably probably would have been underwhelming had they been unmasked. It would have been like that Ed Whalen thing where the Zodiac gets unmasked. I don't know who that is. 
It's uh, so it's been a while since I've watched this Havoc '91 show. God, I need. I wish I had more time to watch wrestling. This has been my great frustration over the last month or so. So why don't I just run down the card as told to us by Gordon Soley? Because uh, just kind of give a quick opinion on each one. Johnny B. Bad versus Jimmy Garvin. It's like, oh, great. I just wished for a Johnny B. Bad, Ronnie Garvin time machine match. It's almost like God heard half of it and decided to give me 1991 Jimmy Garvin. If it had been 1983 Jimmy Garvin, completely different story. Bobby Eaton against Terrence Taylor of the York Foundation. I mean, come on. I mean, Bobby Eaton deserves a hell of a lot better than this. PN News and Big Josh are facing off against the Creatures, which is probably why you don't really uh, care too much about the PN News and Big Josh. What what a team that is. I mean, when you're teaming with PN News, you're just dying to go to the other side of the world and just be a clown for a while. Van Hammer versus Michael Hayes, a very musical matchup, and one that I definitely, well, no, I don't want to see that match at all. That's probably why I haven't watched this pay-per-view. The Enforcers versus the Patriots. So Larry Zabisco and Arn Anderson are the tag team champions. The Patriots, who are were not the New England Patriots, there's Firebreaker Chip and Todd Champion, but I still like them anyway because they were called the Patriots. It didn't take a lot to find your way to my heart in 1991 in wrestling. Tom Zank, the Z-Man, from Robbinsdale, Minnesota, would do the job to the Halloween Havoc Phantom, also of Robbinsdale, Minnesota, Rick Rude. So at least those two guys know each other and would have presumably chemistry. I mentioned the Brian Pillman-Richard Morton match for the first WCW Light Heavyweight. Richard Morton, give me a freaking break. Stunning Steve Austin versus the natural Dustin Rhodes for the TV title. It, okay, so I write down Austin versus Rhodes. It's like, that could be a lot of different pay-per-views. That's like a slightly upper card version of Johnny B. Bad versus DDP. Oh, which WCW pay-per-view is that from? Is it? I think they have a match on Halloween Havoc 93 also. But then again, that's the most forgettable Havoc of them all, even more than this one. Bill Kazmaier was supposed to face Cactus Jack, but Cactus got roped in to the Chamber of Horrors match, which, by the way, okay, it, it doesn't, it, yeah, it probably appears on some wrestle crap, and with the electric switch falling into the down position and Foley having to sneak over and flip it back up, so he kind of saved the match from that regard. It's cheesingly, it, it, it's cheesy, but it's charmingly bad. So I, I, I kind of like it. And, you know, if I'm going to carve out 15 minutes of watching wrestling, I, I will carve out 15 minutes to watch that spectacle. I mean, yeah, is it war games? No. But at least there isn't anything so predictable in the Chamber of Horrors other than, you know, Abby was going to get the chair. I mean, it, it was the only way Abby was going to do a job. And that's not even the main event of Havoc. Because you got Lex Luger and Ron Simmons in a two out of three falls match, which... I don't know who the hell decided that this should be two out of three falls. I mean, maybe I, I, I don't understand it at all because this is Lex Luger it, it, post Ric Flair. He doesn't have anybody to work with. He's not particularly motivated anymore. He's now at the top of the mountain, and he's pretty much gassed, as I recall, for that entire match, which is not to be confused with the Super Brawl match against Sting where he was on the gas and was then gassed, but... He was, I, I remember, really tired. So nobody is the quote-unquote worker in this match. And I say that as somebody who's quite fond of Lex Luger's work in WCW. 
And I like Ron Simmons, but he kind of goes in and out. I mean, I was digging this push at the time. But again, like I just said, when I was 12 years old, I pretty much liked anything that was thrown at me. The graphic for the Luger-Ron Simmons match, for I, when they show this graphic on WWE programming for years and years, it's just the, you know, like the little driver's license photo of the guys. I always remember the Sami Zayn one where it looks like somebody's shoving a doorknob up his ass with, like, the face that he's making. But anyway, the, the graphic has them in profile. Like, they're the Monday Night Football helmets, and they're going to crash into each other, which football would actually play a big part in this feud and I'm not just saying that because Jim Ross is calling the match. You played opposite of me playing professional football. You tried clipping me out of four downs, holding me. This Sunday, it'll be two out of three fall. You can try anything you want, brother. Kick, punch, snap, anything you want. When I put your back on the mat for the one, two, three, the whole world is going to rejoice in my victory. Obviously, I know that Ron Simmons was an excellent college football player, albeit a bit before my time because it was shoved down my throat by Jim Ross. But Lex Luger's football career... Don't really think of this genesis of this Simmons Luger feud being from, oh, they played each other on the football field, which would have been a better way to do it than having that weird promo where Harley Race is kind of racist towards yeah, a man named Race is racist towards uh, Ron Simmons. And it's like, Mr. Hughes is right there. It's like, how could you be racist when, uh, anyway, that, that's a whole other story. But about the football. At Ron Simmons, Florida State. Once he leaves there after the 1980 college season, he goes and plays in the CFL for the Ottawa, uh, probably the Rough Riders. I figure I got a one in four chance of getting that right. And the Tampa Bay Bandits of the United States Football League from 1983 to 85, which pretty much spans the entire league's history. Now, Lex Luger, real name Larry Fall, his career a little bit earlier. It's funny because you. I think of Ron Simmons as being older than Lex Luger, but Luger's football career predates him, professionally anyway, playing for the Montreal Alouettes from 1979 to 1981 when the team apparently folded. But CFL history in Montreal deserves its own podcast, and I'm not the man to deliver that. Luger then was with the Green Bay Packers in 1982, but don't worry, he never played or anything. He was, I think, put on IR or he was injured for the entire season. He's released in 1983. I don't find any record of him playing. Turns up in the USFL in 1984. Bouncing around among three different teams, one of which is the Tampa Bay Bandits. So Lex Luger and Ron Simmons were probably teammates on that team. But yeah, I'm sure that they played each other in the CFL in 1981 when Luger's with Montreal and Simmons is with Ottawa. So yeah, a better way to build the feud than having Harley Race call Ron Simmons' boy in the middle of the ring. It's just just my opinion. I mean, yeah, I guess you could build it around football. It is football season here in October when this aired. So we got Luger in reply here. And he doesn't have Harley Race and Mr. Hughes behind him. In fact, Dusty Rhodes is going to be in Ron Simmons' corner to basically be a counteracting force against Harley Race, who was at ringside. Mr. Hughes was banned. And Luger is doing this promo solo in his usual style where he kind of talks low and then does this. And then, you know, it says a few more things. But... Like the Luger of late 91, the Luger who was the WCW champion in 91 and 92 kind of runs out of gas in the middle of this promo. Halloween Havoc this Sunday night. All the talking, all the posturing, all the contract signing, it's all done with. 
What it comes down to now is who is the greatest wrestler in the world today. The total package, Lex Luger, the world's heavyweight champion, the measuring stick in professional sports today against Ron Simmons, the All-American, all his football, his everything, culminates in Halloween Havoc this Sunday night. You get your chance, Ron, to realize your dream in two out of the three falls. He kind of stumbled at the end. I don't know what he was trying to say. Not a real heel promo there by Luger. Back to Gordon Soley, who says that Dusty Rhodes acquired a one-night-only manager's license. I, uh, I don't know if that's a function of where this show was held, which was in Chattanooga, Tennessee. If maybe Tennessee, I mean, they banned the pile driver, so maybe there were other special rules regarding manager's licenses. But they said, Dusty Rhodes will be neutralizing Harley Race. Like, yo, Dusty neutralizing race. <laughs> I, I, I'll leave that alone. can have whatever opinion you want about kevin nash's wrestling career whether it be diesel vinnie vegas whatever or even this character oz but i will not hear anybody say a bad word about oz's wcw music because it is a rocking friggin tune but all i want to do is listen to this and just make up lyrics to it i'm not very good at making up lyrics right now eat shit all right maybe not the best lyric on that so i'll just cut it off at that point yes i'm so excited to have an oz match he's facing off against john finch who no relation to atticus finch i I don't think but oz stuck around until mid-december of 1991 i'm kind of shocked by this because i when i saw october 1991 i thought that oz was just done away with shortly after the grand american bash but no no apparently not and Oz, yeah, he had cool music. But one thing you may not know, and this has turned up in a Kevin Nash shoot interview, which, by the way, not quite as ubiquitous as Jim Cornette ones, but still, you know, okay. Kevin Nash, a very entertaining fellow at times, you know, when he's not being annoying. And he talked about the Oz character, <laughs> much like Alphaville, the band, is big in Japan, apparently. Like, yes, I could just picture Kevin Nash in the Oz outfit going over and conquering, like, New Japan or All Japan or whatever, becoming a triple crown champion because this character is just so, so over with the... <laughs> now, this, this was from an Eric Bischoff podcast, not the 83 Weeks one. But the old one that he did, uh, Bischoff on Wrestling. And this is what he had to say. Uh, I would love to do a Kevin Nash voice where, where you know, I, I don't care about anything and all I care about is drinking wine. Or, or that's the only thing he cares about. I'm one of those guys that could say what I want to, honestly, about the character. But part of the story I never tell is how WCW went ahead and sent Oz to New Japan. <laughs> My first night over there, I'm going to wrestle Hashimoto in the Osaka Dome. <laughs> I was on when Nash brings up like the, like the venues. <laughs> so they bring us down during the daytime. They kind of walk me through this entrance, and I'm on like a platform that's going to rise through some smoke. I'm going to the ring first, and the night they hit each each of these, they hit these green red lasers in the smoke machine. Slowly with these lasers bouncing off everywhere, the smoke machine and this kind of cool techno music. 
Maybe it's not the same thing. Slowly they raise me, and the tip of my dunce hat comes out, and as I come up, I hear them all saying, Aza, Aza, Aza. I'm like, what are they saying? Finally, I realize they're saying, Oz, Oz, Oz. Oh my god, this thing is over. It's over over here. It was. So yes, Kevin Nash just could have conquered Japan if just given an opportunity to do so. <laughs> like, all right, I... I I don't know. I don't, I don't know about this character, but I, I I'm glad that it exists. I don't care if it sucks. <laughs> I really don't. It's like WCW in general. I don't care about the bad stuff. I'm just glad you're here. Not to mention the fact that if it wasn't for WCW, we wouldn't have Kevin Nash in our lives to the same extent. And the thing about Kevin Nash is he never disappoints, unless of course he tears a quad. But you know those things are going to happen. I mean. If he only had fully functional quads, who knows what he could have done over in Japan. He could have taken Stan Hansen's spot as the number one gaijin in Japan all through the 90s. I mean, that's what people in Japan were dying to see. Kevin Nash as Oz. Now, yeah, he did not have fully functioning quad muscles. But as Kevin Nash himself pointed out, this is an upper body business. Unless, of course, apparently, if you're Adam Cole, where you got arms the size of olive oil and you become the NXT champion. Gee, I wonder why they're losing in the ratings to AEW. Anyway, I, <laughs> I love how they just gradually stop trying with the Oz gimmick as well. Because when he comes out at Super Brawl, it's got the full entrance with the smoke, which apparently stunk up the arena because it was very, uh, it had like sulfur in it. And then eventually, by the time you get to the clash in June, it's scaled down a bit. And then you get to the Great American Bash, he doesn't have the mask anymore. And basically, you know, yeah, he was a victim of WCW cutbacks. For all the largesse of WCW, they couldn't see fit to continue to give Oz the proper entrance. No wonder why Kevin Nash was so determined to bankrupt the company in the late 90s and into 2000. Because he was still pissed about Oz. That was the whole genesis of the NWO angle. Oz and Razor, Razor Ramon. Diamond Stud. Let's face it, people. Razor Ramon is basically the Diamond Stud. Scott Hall pitched that, but that, that's that's for another time. So Nash, when he takes off the whole getup and he's in the ring, he's wearing bright green tights, and he looks like a really tall Sting because he's got the blonde crew cut. He manhandles Finch early on. I, I, I really kind of want to call him a, a another version of a fake Sting, although I have a recollection of Kevin Nash dressing up as Sting, the Crow Sting, and interfering in a Hogan-Luger match. Was it Road Wild 97, or was that somebody else? I don't know who it was. But JR, he sees potential in uh, this big man, Oz. Oz, a big, strong individual that I really think has got tremendous potential. He has not uh, perfected all the wonderful uh, wrestling moves that some wrestlers have, but the got to remember the guy is uh, very young in this sport he has got a mean streak i will assure you he is a very very uh, credible athlete yes because when i think of the natural athletes of wcw in 1991 kevin nash definitely lands somewhere in the top 35 <laughs> what the hell? i know he's a basketball player in the late 70s but he said he was young to this sport i'm glad that he clarified that because Believe it or not, Kevin Nash is already in his mid-30s at this point. So he was not a spring chicken, as they say. Shoulder block, 
And the body vice he locks the man up in, but instead of getting the submission with the backbreaker, he spins the man around and kind of does like a jackknife powerbomb type maneuver, which is funny because wouldn't it have made the jackknife powerbomb a cooler looking move and maybe gotten him even more over as Diesel? Spin the guy around? Of course, it's a little bit reckless. I mean, you could drop the guy out straight on his shoulder and hurt hurt somebody that way. So maybe I do understand at the end of the day. And he does curry my favor by pinning him with the Bad News Brown style one foot on him. So thank you so much, WCW, for providing me with a character like Oz to talk about and for bringing Kevin Nash into all of our lives. The time, the place Ron Simmons has been waiting for because, ladies and gentlemen, Ron Simmons will challenge Lex Luger for the WCW World's Heavyweight Championship with a two-out-of-three-fall stipulation. And, Ron, I remember a few years ago when I was living in Oklahoma and they were preparing to play Florida State in the Orange Bowl, Coach Barry Switzer said, we think we've got a great game plan offensively. That is, if we can figure out how to block the nose tackle, Ron Simmons, number 50. I am not exactly what you would call a scholar of college football from that era. It should be the 1980 college football season in the Orange Bowl when Oklahoma met Florida State, although... They also met in the Orange Bowl the year before. Back in those days, Oklahoma was always going to the Orange Bowl because the Big 8 champion was contracted to play there. So you had a situation at the end of the 1980 season where Florida State could have won the national title. They were ranked number 2. They're playing number 4, Oklahoma. Meanwhile, number 1, Georgia, is playing Notre Dame, who was ranked number 7 in the Sugar Bowl. So if Georgia loses and Florida State wins, they have a case to be number 1, even though they and Georgia each would have had one loss. The way college football works is whoever lost last always gets ranked lower. And as it turned out, Georgia won, made the whole point moot. But it's a great game between Oklahoma and Florida State. It's on YouTube. I mean, I haven't sat and watched the whole thing, but it was 18-17, to 17, Oklahoma won converting a two-point conversion on the winning touchdown and then Florida State missing on a 62-yard field goal at the end of the game. I don't know if the kickers were still allowed to use tees on field goals. I I know they were in college up to a certain point. That might have ended around 77. But like I said, I'm not a scholar on that sort of thing. The Orange Bowl Stadium in Miami was the only place where Florida State lost that year. They lost their regular season game to Miami and in the Orange Bowl game, and they were undefeated everywhere else. So Ron Simmons is with Jim Ross. This is the Ross Report interview segment, which it's got nothing to do with the old podcast that he used to do where he was running solo and constantly talking about some guy in WWE named Daniel Bryant. Every time I heard him say that, it would just drive me nuts. Like, I want to start calling him Jim Ross even though his name is Ross, but it doesn't really matter. So, Ron Simmons, can you tell us why Dusty Rhodes managed to get a one-day-only manager's license for this one? Everybody knows Dusty Rhodes' credibility, and they knows that he's a straight-down-the-line straight person. He'll draw no favors either way, right? But this is the thing here. If Harley Race gets in the way, sure. I'm looking for him to come in and take care of that. And it's a two out of three falls match. And if, well, there'll be a break in between the, you know, the falls. Right. So if there's a weakness that he sees that Luger has or something that I'm doing wrong, I welcome his advice. Oh, after all, hey, the man has been there. 
What I like about that is it's logical and it makes perfect sense of why he would want Dusty Rhodes there. So this is being presented as a sporting event. No wonder why Bill Watts took a liking to Ron Simmons. That must be the only reason why Bill Watts wanted to make Ron Simmons champion. Because I certainly can't think of any other reason why Bill Watts would have been pushing Ron Simmons to the world title in the middle of 1992. Now, JR brings up Luger's finishing hold, which was a pile driver, but was called the attitude adjustment, which is funny to think about in retrospect, given how another move became that. It's just like when I was taking them down on that bus to the Omni, and just like I was delivering that speech at the youth club, hey, if you try and set a goal for yourself, you never have to be worried or feel afraid about failing, because by failing, at least you've tried and you've done something that you had on your mind, on the goal that you set for yourself. Never feel afraid of failing because through trying, that'll make you a winner. I'm not going to make the argument that Ron Simmons is any sort of revolutionary figure for professional wrestling in the United States. Yes, he's the first African-American WCW champion, all, all, all that sort of stuff that they were promoting in 92 when he finally gets to the top of the mountain. But this kind of reminds me of hockey in some ways. And before you roll your eyes, let me let me just explain real quick is hockey has a demographic problem where a lot of the I mean it's a very white league the National Hockey League and when you look at it and you see how demographics are changing in both the United States and Canada I can't really speak as much to Europe but probably the same thing too you're going you're going to want to make that sport popular for people of all races and creeds it's it's not going to be a quote-unquote white man's sport anymore so to have somebody like Ron Simmons in a higher position is can appeal to people who look like him, which is good because let's just take this Jordan Miles situation over the last week with that t-shirt. I look at it, and he was pretty pissed off. I, I feel like he may have gone a little bit overboard at a certain point, but he was pretty justified. Now, how does a shirt like that become created? Well... I don't think it's necessarily overt racism because they, you know, if you go get to a position in power like that, you probably constrain any sort of overt racism you might have. Hello, Triple H, Booker T angle of 2003. But anyway, they were probably completely oblivious to what that shirt actually looked like with the black face and all all the implications of that. They probably just did not know, and were completely oblivious, which is a different kind of racism. And I don't know how the hell I got onto that, but as, as a white dude from Boston, I should probably just shut the hell up. Handled it into left center field. That ball is down, and a bad ball. It's off the wall. Lonnie Smith is held up at third, and he didn't do very good base running. That was terrible by Lonnie. He didn't pick the ball up. He stopped when he rounded second base. And that was the deciding play of Game 7 of the 1991 World Series. Lonnie Smith stopping at second base because he got faked out by Chuck Knobloch for some reason. Just absolutely idiotic base running. And the only reason why Lonnie Smith was even playing was because Otis Nixon, the regular Braves center fielder, had been suspended for cocaine in September. So just like professional wrestling, it's like, why did Otis Nixon, why did you have to like cocaine so much? 
ruined a promising year for the Braves, even though they got to the World Series, and they come up just short in the end. Just just as the Houston Astros did by losing four freaking home games in a single World Series. I'm just glad that my Bruins don't have the worst Game 7 loss in a championship final for the year 2019 anymore. So anyway, onward and upward to our next bout, which is a strange one because it is a women's match in 1991 WCW. I mean, you're you're about as likely to find one of those as you are to find a women's match in Saudi Arabia. Oh, wait, I actually just saw one of those with Natalia and Lacey Evans. Let's just say Lacey could not wear the same gear in Saudi Arabia that she could. I don't know. So, yeah, clearly you can tell that I am taping this on Thursday <laughs> because I, I just finished watching that Saudi show. And, uh, yeah, that was that was something else, wasn't it? Well, anyway, I'm probably not going to give out any spoilers. But WCW Women's Division, there's no real commitment to building anything of this sort. So what is Medusa doing here? Well, the fact is there's really nowhere for her to go in North America. Her run as Alundra Blaze isn't for another couple of years. WWF doesn't have any sort of women's division. Thank God, though, that they repurposed Sherry into a manager where she was outstanding. But once again, thanks a lot, fabulous Moolah, for completely destroying women's wrestling in the United States to the point where there wasn't anybody left to form a coherent women's division in the year 1991. But here Medusa is taking on Judy Martin, the reliable veteran. And somebody who I think would be great in today's women's division in WWE because while she's not the pixie stick that some of the gals are these days, she's not, you know, as big as Nia Jax. So she's sort of in that in-between, between the middle and a Nia Jax. You need people at that level as well. Medusa's debut was against Leilani Kai, which is Judy Martin's tag team partner in the Glamour Girls Once Upon a Time. That was on the October 19th edition of WCW, Saturday Night Mothership 605 TBS. So this weekend that this show aired was the only time that Judy Martin was on WCW television because she was on the Saturday show the night before this, and then this was the only other match, at least according to Cage Match. I mean... I never would have guessed that Judy Martin did anything in WCW. And she's actually referred to on commentary as former one half of the world tag team champions. Now, I don't know if they're referring to WWF tag team titles with the aforementioned Glamour Girls, but at the time of this taping, she was one half of the LPWA tag team champions with Leilani Kai. So I guess that's a female promotion, but you have to think Medusa, considering how highly regarded she was Pro Wrestling Illustrated Rookie of the Year, that maybe she could do a little bit better in work in one of the bigger promotions, but they just did not have the commitment to it. Because thanks a lot, Fabulous Moolah, for completely destroying any prospects for women's wrestling for years to come. Start off with a test of strength that goes quickly into a Northern Light suplex for Medusa. And JR says that Medusa just isn't likable, which I, I, I found kind of funny. He got kind of straight to the point. As Martin takes Medusa down for a bit, but then runs into a foot in the corner, slammed by Medusa, and then she hits a drop kick off the second rope. I mean, I think she, Medusa, I'm not maybe as high on her as people were at the time. I think her stuff holds up okay. I mean, when you take somebody from a different era and you're trying to transplant them into the current era, you have to factor in 
She pro, you know, she would get all the sort of you know behind the scenes work that somebody would in NXT coming up. And if you put Medusa in that situation, I think she's even better than she was at that time. If if you if you catch what I'm saying, she then tries to lock in a Boston Crab, which then turns into a half crab, and then she locks in an STF, and I'm like, holy crap! This is long before Eric Watts invented that move. I'm sorry, I could I could not make it through saying that, but it gets broken by Judy. And Medusa goes right back to the STF, which is the great thing about it is, yeah, maybe not every the casual wrestling fan knew that hold as such. But even Jim Ross, Mr. I know everything about college football and I guess pro wrestling, he didn't know what to call it either. And Medusa went for a Boston Crab, let go of one leg. It's a half crab. And now she's got that face locked again. Boy, Ron Simmons seems focused on... Uh... I let that go because of the long pause and kind of imagining what, what's happening. He, nobody's talking to him over the headset. There's no Bruce Pritchard in the back. Like, there is on that WrestleMania 9 pre-show match with El Matador, Tito Santana, and Papa Shango, where you, he's clearly getting yelled at, but you're, you're only hearing what Jim Ross is saying. They did that as sort of a dry run before the show. But that long silence, I could just picture somebody in the back, whether it be Vince or somebody else. Hey, you oaky mother It's an STF. God damn, pal. It'd be funny if it was Vince McMahon. Like, he actually knows all the names of the holds, but doesn't actually say it when he's on commentary. I don't know. I'm just kind of living in a dream world right now. As Judy switches it somehow into a hammer lock, so she's got Medusa down on the mat. But once back up to a vertical base, Medusa hits a spin kick. And then there's there's a very weird spot here where she misses with a spin kick. And then uh, Judy just kind of stops in the middle of the ring. And Medusa now catches the leg and locks on the STF for a third time. But Judy ends up getting to the ropes. It was, it was kind of a bizarre sequence. Uh, but a suplex by Judy Martin. But Medusa kind of no-sells it and just gets up right away. I thought that was a little weird. I mean, you know, make nice with the other people who are coming over here to lay down for you. I mean, my God, you're having trouble building any sort of women's division. How the hell are we going to get you over on TV? It's not like you're going to dress up, show your tits like Missy Hyatt or anything like that. I, I, I don't know. But a waist lock leads to nowhere and then a kick to the head by Medusa. But Judy then picks the arm, but Medusa gets to the rope. So we're just kind of having a little back and forth. And Medusa hits one of the sloppiest German suplexes. Not that she dumped Judy on her head. It was just kind of really awkward looking as she goes for the pin. But the shoulders are not down because Judy sort of rolled because of how awkward it was. So they try it again with a leg hook. And that picks up the one, two, three. So this is not the greatest match I've ever seen with these two women. Medusa, very good professional wrestler. Like I said, highly regarded. You know I like Judy Martin because I've had you know matches of her on this show as well. But the two of them together here didn't exactly work for me. Not the greatest in the world. But it's certainly interesting to see this match in a WCW ring in 1991. Introducing first. From truth or consequences, New Mexico, weighing 287 pounds, Cactus Jack. 
That's certainly one of the more famous kayfabe hometowns is Truth or Consequences, New Mexico for Cactus Jack. It was originally called Hot Springs, New Mexico, and it was changed in 1950 after a radio quiz show or game show of some kind. And that city, its population since the year 2000, so Mick Foley's, I guess, first retirement, it was at about 7,200 back then at the 2000 census. And it's down to an estimated 5865 in the year 2018. So I don't know if Cactus Jack had anything to do with that. Probably not because it is only a kayfabe hometown. He's facing off against Van Hammer from New York City. I'm trying to figure out which one of the four boroughs that Van Hammer has decided to set up shop in. Now, when you think of Van Hammer, you think of how much everybody hates him, whether it be the boys in the back for resenting the push that he got immediately. And he had just come in at this point in time. But Dave Meltzer was particularly unforgiving towards Van Hammer and his uh, wrestling style, shall we say. And come to find out that uh, I did not know that the man playing Van Hammer is a Navy man. So I kind of want to do that really annoying thing where you say to Meltzer, why do you hate why do you hate the troops because he criticized the guy who was in the Navy? I always hate when people do that, especially around the Iraq war in 2003. That was madness back then. Freedom fries. Give me a freaking break. So anyway, why does Meltzer hate the troops? Oh, no, that's not the subject that I was going to be on. So. Van Hammer, he comes to the ring with this guitar that's got, like, the pointy thing. So instead of having, like, a round end to it, it's shaped like a V, which I guess makes sense because, you know, you could stylize guitars like that at that time. And also, his name is Van Hammer. You get the V in there. And he, he would like to sling it. You know, he'd have the guitar strap, and he would sling it around, and it would kind of do, like, revolutions around his body, like, as if he was, you know... <laughs> If he was the sun and the guitar is a planet. Well, one time somebody greased up Van Hammer's stuff and the, the, the freaking guitar went out of control and he hurt himself or something like that. So they razzed him, not quite to the extent of like Outback Jack where they like shaved his eyebrows and all this other stuff. Now, I liked the pointy guitar, but once again, I was 12 years old. And uh, I cannot be trusted. My judgment in 1991 was very, very poor, I think, from a fashion sense and pretty much everything across the board. Crowd doesn't seem to be entirely into this. You know, usually I'll look up where this stuff was taped from. I don't really care where this was taped. So, ha, huh, how about that? The Cactus, he he's more into not so much the heavy metal music. He seems to be very annoyed by the music as he's waiting for this match to begin he's more into some contemporary pop i mean think dude love down down the road that that's what he's into i'm pretty sure i mentioned this concept on a podcast before i mean there's 139 before this one including all the other stuff the concept of bob dylan rules which means that when a huge artist comes to your town you should go see them because they could die or they could retire at any point this is what got me to drive to Shea Stadium in 2008 to see Pedro Martinez. And he had one more year left in him. Well, Jim Ross, because of Cactus Jack's ring style, suggests that you save up some tapes on this guy because he's not going to be around forever. I mentioned before, if you're a fan of Cactus Jack, I hope you keep all his matches on the videotape because of the chances he takes, he may have a short career. 
I hope not, but uh, it certainly could happen. Even though Mick Foley would do all sorts of risky stuff, he knew perfectly well what he was doing. I want to say he's crazy like a fox, but that's already reserved for Brian Pillman. But, yeah, 2000, he retires, and all the times he came back, I'm not going to, you know, hold that against him. I mean, look at Terry Funk and the number of times that he came back. Now, granted, Terry Funk comebacks, on in general, after the 1983 Japan retirement, much more successful than anything McFoley did after his 2000 retirement. But I don't begrudge the man. He has kids. I mean, somebody's got to support Noel, okay? And it's not going to be Frank the Clown on his TNA Impact uh, salary. I'm sorry he was on there. I, I mean, I don't want to kill the guy or anything, but, you know, is is this where we are in the year 2019? But, oh, well. So we get a lockup with Cactus and Van Hammer, who, as I mentioned earlier, would have a much more famous match down the road at the Clash in January of 92. But they break clean in the corner. So Cactus, on the second lockup, tries a cheap shot. Van Hammer just blocks it. And then they reset. So we, we see how this is going to go. This is going to be very, very plotting because Van Hammer, you're not going to get a whole lot out of him. But I'm not going to criticize him too much because he's a Navy guy and I don't hate the troops. Needed a gut and Cactus does take control. It, speaking of Terry Funk, I, it's a, I always like the way he says Cactus. I think it might have been from the Beyond the Mat thing. Cactus. Cactus. I, I, I just like the way Terry Funk says things. I, I I like Terry Funk. I love Terry Funk. I think me and him should get an apartment together. When this all gets sorted out, I think you and me should get an apartment together. Just take it easy, champ. Why don't you stop talking for a while? Maybe sit the next couple plays out. But I can't. I'm the only one here. I'm the only person on this show, so I have to keep going. I get a taunt by Cactus Jack. Come on, glamour boy. Probably the same thing that the boys were saying to him in the back. A, a front chancery by Cactus Jack, showing off those mat skills that he wouldn't get to do very often. It's like that Shane McMahon segment from, I believe, the Raw where he won the world title, where he locked him in some sort of submission hold and ended up getting the title match against The Rock that way. You know how I know? Because I was there. And also because I watched that Raw a couple of years ago, which would be the only way that I remember because 1999 WWF, I barely remember a damn thing. So, Honestly, it's just a rest hole for Jim Ross to put over Halloween Havoc. And by the way, in case you're wondering why I even heard Missy Hyatt doing color on any of these matches, she's just like the host. They, she only does like in-between segments like two or three times a show. Jim Ross is running solo here. Now, Missy, I kind of made fun of her for her work on a WCW main event from late 90, but I do wish she was there, because at least it provided a little bit more color to the broadcast. Will this be the night that Ron Simmons realizes his dream? Who will be the first WCW Light Heavyweight Champion? Who in the hell is the Halloween Phantom? JR is getting a little punchy. I almost feel like I'm listening to some of his AEW work, where he's just ridiculing everything that's going on in the ring. I mean, Van Hammer is extremely limited, so we're locked into this rest hole. While he's got the time, Jim Ross gives his opinion on how he thinks the Chamber of Horrors match is going to play out. And what's going to transpire in a Chamber of Horrors? I think it's going to be a bloodbath in there, quite frankly. 
Maybe I'll be wrong. Yeah, Jim, I think you are wrong because this is WCW 1991. Guys aren't cutting their foreheads open like it's Starcade 85 at this point in time. And the one thing I remember from his WSB radio show was somebody called in asking why there isn't more blood on TBS. And I remember Jim Ross calmly explained, no, no, I don't think we're going to see a lot of blood baths on TBS. I remember just listening to that like, what the hell is this? Like, what are they even talking about? <laughs> I don't think there was any blood in the Chamber of Horrors match, but who knows? I mean, Abdullah the Butcher was in there, so he probably, you know, just bled organically, I would imagine. So anyway, Cactus charges to the corner, but he ends up hitting his shoulder in the ring post, which I'm going to call the Warlord Memorial Charge. He's not fucking dead. Of course I know he's not dead. He was with the Barbarian at some indie show recently that I saw a video of where they did a power spot in the middle of the ring and they just lacked the power to do it these days. Jack, unlike the Warlord, he actually tumbles to the outside because Mick Foley's always going to do a little bit extra. Eventually back inside, he hits Van Hammer with a couple of headbutts and then a corner whip. Hammer bounces out of it and Jack sends him f- sends Hammer face first into the mat. That gets a two count, so Cactus now goes up to the top rope and jumps right into a raised boot by Van Hammer, which, if you look at that move objectively, it, it makes the guy jumping off the ropes look idiotic because Van Hammer already had his foot up by the time Cactus had jumped. It's a spot that you'd see Andre the Giant do as well, except that was Andre the Giant and this is Van Hammer. No disrespect to the naval veteran. Unless, of course, he was discharged dishonorably, which I saw nothing to that effect. I probably would have said something about that earlier if that was the case. So anyway, <laughs> whip and a drop kick by Van Hammer, who is better than Eric Watts at drop kicks. So I'm going to at least hand it to him there. And a reversal of a corner whip. So Cactus now does the SD Jones memorial charge. So he he does not hit the post. He actually hits the corner. It's funny, but S.D. Jones and the Warlord charge in the same match, and Van Hammer hits a clothesline to the back of the head, and then three more, with which the last one was particularly crappy looking, and he tries to get Cactus up for a vertical suplex, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here is the aforementioned Abdullah the Butcher, who runs into the ring and does not pull out a fork and stab Van Hammer between the eyes. No, instead... And I could not believe this because I I made sure to not research anything about what happened in this match before I watched it for the show. Van Hammer picks up Abdul the Butcher and freaking slams him. How the hell did this happen? Okay, I, I was I was shaken by this. Van Hammer slamming Abdul the Butcher clean in the middle of the ring. What the hell is this? And Abby, you know, was uh, pretty hot for mid-91 WCW as far as that goes. I mean, yeah, it's probably, you know, grading on a curve there. But come on. I mean, really? Van Hammer is going to slam Abdul the Butcher. This is like on the WorldCast podcast, Kelly Nelson's been talking about how Johnny Mantel, brother, I think brother, of the Booker Ken Mantel, or related to him in some way, was getting Super Push 83 in World Class. This is Van Hammer's getting super push 91. This is beyond the pale. It's even more than uh, PN News earlier in the year. So Van Hammer lays out both of these heels and then just leaves. And I'm very annoyed by all of this. Like, I waited to watch this and, like, 
made sure to not have any spoilers for not even the most famous Cactus Jack versus Van Hammer match. And this is what I get. Uh, you know what? I probably deserve it. After all, I was late with the podcast this week. The main event. WCW World Heavyweight Champion, Total Package, Lex Luger. The All-American, Simmons. A classic struggle. The world title match of the century. There'll be no holding back. Halloween Havoc 91, Chamber of Horrors. Live Sunday, October 27th. Be there for a howling good time. Only on pay-per-view. This came as a surprise. I didn't remember Elvira jumping to WCW, although, to be fair, WWF had her calling WrestleMania 2, including the main event. So apparently Elvira only does world title matches. That's that apparently in her contract, I, I would assume. But they were so desperate for announcers in 86. I think WWF should have had her call a couple of all- all-star wrestlings with, <laughs> with Gorilla Monsoon. That could have been fun. Of course, I don't, I don't know about the banter between those two i mean uh, her with jesse was just uh great but yeah match of the century i mean she was there for bundy and hogan which i know a lot of people don't like as a wrestlemania 2 main event because it felt a little rushed given the build happened on like an early march saturday night's main event but eh, i i think i got i think i gotta put bundy hogan over <laughs> ron simmons versus unmotivated lex luger from 1991 but really nice to see Elvira in her ample bosom. And speaking of which, Missy Hyatt is back with Jim Ross. And they they go back to the Saturday TBS show from the night before. They got Medusa, who is really trying to make an impression for a division that does not even exist yet. And <laughs> I, want, I want to say that she's here to take out the trash, but there's no trash barrel in the vicinity this time. Motivation? Mr. Ross, I have, I have respect for you. Just shush up one minute. I am the first lady of WCW. In fact, I am professional wrestling. If that means I have to demolish every valet, Miss Blossom. If that means I have to demolish every valet and every manager, Miss York, and every wannabe, Miss commentator, Miss Missy Hyatt, I will, and then some. If that means I will kick some ass. You think you are, Lady Hillary Clinton? Little too yelly for somebody who doesn't have anybody else in her division, because she's talking about Lady Blossom, for whatever reason, who who's not even an in-ring competitor in any way. Missy Hyatt, who was only an in-ring competitor in, like, the UWF years before with Dark Journey. So, I'm not sure. But, hey, like I said earlier, we could reboot the Golden Girls with Missy Hyatt as Blanche, you have Medusa as Dorothy. We just need to cast Sophia and Rose. And uh, I'm pretty sure that that would be simple enough. Uh, I'm willing to take suggestions. That is for sure. Missy just says that Medusa doesn't really have it. So just completely dismisses her as a rival. As if she doesn't understand what the threat is at this point. Jim Ross, for his part, I'm estimating that he has a boner. And that's why they're shooting him from the waist up. Not because of Missy. Oh, no, 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 no. It's because a monitor in the background is showing a Dr. Death match from the UWF, and JR just, he, he can't control himself at, at this point. And then, this is before Blue Chew, so you know it was pretty bad. And the dick joke feels like a good place to wrap it up for WCW main event for October 27th, 1991. <laughs> Thank you.
in other podcasts this week. You know, ones that came out at the time that they were supposed to come out. That being on Monday for the Our Vantage Point podcast, Joe Moran and Michael Quinn, episode 151. An appreciation of Tito Santana. Now, that's something everybody can agree on. And on the wrestling podcast about nothing with Mike Crockett, Brawler Malonis of Ring of Honor, and the owner of Chaotic Wrestling, Brian Fury. And I'll be going to the Chaotic Show tomorrow night, November 1st, in Lawrence, Massachusetts. A new venue for them, the Lawrence Alex. They're not talking about that one, but they're talking about gimmick changes through the years. And yes, the one-man gang transformation into Akeem is definitely brought up. I'm very excited about this new venue in Lawrence, Mass. It's barely over the lines. It's basically Andover, Mass. It, the, they do not run shows at the Woburn Elks Club anymore. The last show there was in September. So not, now running at the Lawrence Elks is actually better for me because it is much closer to my house. And on the Sportscasters with Buffalo's Steve Bennett, he's got Joe Tessitore. So keeping up with his noble tradition of having the main play-by-play announcer of Monday Night Football, Joe Tessitore, finally makes his first appearance on the Sportscasters. No YouTube comment theater this week because there's only three comments on there. Come on, people. It's WCW main event from 1991. You should be watching these on YouTube religiously and then commenting on it as such. And I'm going to do a quick Vinny Vegas Corners 2-1 and one last week. So you, you would have won money had you followed me. And yeah, I did pick the Red uh, Redskins. The Chiefs at home against the Packers. That's the one that I went astray on. So real quick. For week number, holy crap, we're at week number nine already. So halfway home, like Houston in the morning London game. So 9.30 Eastern time, 6.30 on the west coast of the United States. Houston giving one and a half to the Jacksonville Jaguars. The city of Houston needs a lift after losing, once again, four World Series home games. I mean, give me a break with that. And I also like the Green Bay Packers on the road giving four points at the Los Angeles Chargers, although that stadium is going to be 90% Green Bay Packers fans because they will flock there, and that's the way Chargers games are. You know, they don't have a home field advantage, and uh, I did say I don't think the Packers are as good as what they seem, but considering this is like a ninth home game for them, I do think they'll cover the four against the Chargers, who got kind of a fluky win over the Bears last week. Then finally, again, I don't like putting the Patriots in this, but the Patriots only giving three and a half in Baltimore. I'll take my chances with that, especially because I think they've won 21 consecutive games against first and second year quarterbacks. And uh, Lamar Jackson is in his second year. So, you know, I'm, I'm just going to ride that streak. So the Patriots giving three and a half, Green Bay giving four, and Houston giving one and a half for Vinny Vegas Corner because I have a winning record when I don't play the music, and when I play the music, I don't. And anyway, I'm rushing to try and get this show over with. Next week, I don't know which show it's going to be, but I'm going to do a WWF show from some point between 1984 and 1989. i got to get back to the bread and butter, WWF in the mid to late 80s. That That's what I want to do. That That's going to get me fired up to watch wrestling over the weekend as we set the clocks back an hour and completely disregard my idea to set the clocks back 20 minutes and then just leave it and dare the rest of the world to match us because they want to have New York time. Anyway, I think I'm starting to go crazy from trying to finish this particular edition of the podcast. Is it just me or am I saying more batty stuff in this show than I am in any other shows? I mean, I I, I don't know, but I, <laughs> I should probably just tap out right now, call it a week, 
Thank you so much for listening. And do leave a five-star review. Despite my battiness and my craziness on this program, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because it provides what is known as social proof that you are listening to and enjoying this program. And do tune in next Thursday for another exciting Thursday. Should be Thursday. I have to imagine it would be Thursday for another exciting episode of Great Eggs from Allentown. the Halloween Phantom.